Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is, is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Petucci, is being a mama and a postpartum doula at the moment. She's going to be coming in and moonlighting for a few episodes here and there, but as you can all probably attest to, the juggle is real at the moment, being a mama and a doula and also a business owner. So yes, hoping to have Mika on the podcast very, very soon. We are the lead doulas at Fill Your Cup. We practice in Melbourne and Hobart and essentially we look after newborn mamas who are tired, overwhelmed and just need some support. So we provide in-home care with our team of doulas. So a big shout out to Amanda and Caitlin and Georgie and Samara and Kate we could not do this without you and we love sharing this work with you. So yes, such an exciting time to be part of such a wonderful community of doulas. And another thing that's super exciting at the moment, Mika and I have been working behind the scenes for close to a year now on what is going to be our first Fill Your Cup FYC product range. And we have our wonderful chocolate goji lactation cookie mix. So it's a dry mix. We've been making these for mamas, gosh, close to 18 months now. And every single mama who has tried these cookies, I'm not putting words in their mouth, but have literally said these are the best cookies I have ever had. I think, you know, gone the days where, you know, we're searching for cookies that have been sitting on a shelf for we're not too sure how long, but our cookies are all organic ingredients. All you have to do is add 85 mils of melted coconut oil and two eggs. And we've also modded the recipe such that you can make it vegan as well. So you can sub the eggs for water. So those are going on sale for pre-order on the 27th of July. And I'm just going to read out a few comments that we've received from our in-home care mamas who have tasted these. Sandra said, these are quote, best cookies in the world. I've tried quite a few over the years through my line of work and nothing compares to these amazing cookies and definitely help with building my supply. By week five, Bub was not needing bottle top-ups any longer, which is just so amazing that she's able to do that. And we had similar comments from Kate. 
She said, quote, after struggling with supply feeding bub number one, I tried FYC goji lactation cookies with bub number two. Not only are they absolutely delicious, in brackets she said, dare you to stop at one. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. They gave me supply, they gave my supply a real boost and were the best quick snack or brekkie entree. I tried everything to boost supply previously and I'm so happy I came across the FYC brand, have recommended them to every postpartum mama I know, which is really, really sweet. Thank you so much, Kate, for for that. And these are just from reviews that we've received, um, our Google reviews and also internal reviews as well. So these are our perfect 3am snack, these beautiful cookies. They are, you know, every mama's go-to one-handed snack to help nourish your body while you're nourishing your baby. And as I said, 100% organic ingredients. It's something that Mika and I are very, very passionate about. As you know, we are biochemists by trade as well. So we're very passionate about pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And with over 16 years of education and healthcare research between the two of us, we think we know what we're talking about. (laughs) So with the lactation cookie mix, we're also bringing out our creamy coconut dal mix, which is first in market to contain organic chicken bone broth within the mix. So it is just going to be a rip, tip, pour and stir mix some coconut cream and water is all you need to add and you are going to have a beautiful, nourishing, fibre and iron rich, whether it be lunch or dinner and everything is easily freezable as well. And to round that all off, we needed something super, super luxe, something that you can just indulge in when you get a minute which we know they're few and far between as a mama, but when you do, make it worth it. So we have also put together our postpartum recovery sits, which has seven organic botanicals in it, which including witch hazel leaf, lavender, yarrow, calendula, chamomile, comfrey and marshmallow root. And these are just all so amazing, you know, help ease that inflammation and soothe um, any sensitive vajayjays, you know, the comfrey and calendula and yarrow, they're your plant warriors. So they're going to provide antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory and tissue healing properties. And as we say, take a deep breath. And that is the serene smell of lavender and chamomile melting those anxieties away. So each one of those products will be available for pre-order on our website, ifillyourcup.com. On the 27th of July, you'll be able to purchase them individually as well as a complete bundle. They're great for obviously yourself, but also for all the other mamas that you know, fantastic for a baby shower gift or just a new mama who's had a beautiful little bub. If you would like to secure your pre-order discount, head over to our website. It is going to be exclusive to FYC Village members only. So when you pop over to our website, a little pop-up will come up onto the screen and we'll ask for your name and email and we'll be sending those discount vouchers out closer to the pre-order date. So 
With all of that and talking about really nourishing food, today on the podcast, I have a wonderful woman. Her name is Amy O'Shea. She is a nutritionist and a paramedic and a mama. Like, oh my goodness, such a wonderful combination. So Amy and I first met when I moved to Tasmania and I was kind of, you know, reaching out to like-minded women in my community. I needed to build a new village coming from Melbourne and Amy and I clicked just straight away. We've just, oh, got this insatiable passion and appetite for food, her being a nutritionist, myself being a biochemist and someone who looks after newborn mamas. And so Amy has over six years of university education with a bachelor degree in paramedic practice and a master's degree in human nutrition. And we talk about this, we talk about the difference between nutritionists and, you know, the qualifications that they have. And then we deep dive into what has become Amy's niche in her newfound business as a nutritionist. And Amy really focuses in on empowering parents to be confident and to have the skills to nourish their own children, to ensure that they grow up with a healthy relationship with food, which is a very, very strong, I guess, you know, pillar of Amy's business. Because as she says, it's a really tricky task in a world full of diet culture. So today we deep dive into four particular topics, including starting solids with your baby or progressing through solids, you know, from maybe purees to baby led weaning and and everything in between. And then we tackle, (laughs) we tackle picky eating or what she likes to call selective eating. And I I think that this is a really, really interesting topic. There's, a, I think, a bit of psychology around it as well. So Amy has been just providing some fantastic information, I know, on her social media and no doubt to her clients one-on-one. And I learned a lot, actually, in, in that section. And then we talk about weaning as well and some myths and misconceptions when it comes to infant and I guess toddler healthy relationships with with food. So without further ado, here is Amy O'Shea from Little Bean Nutrition. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Amy from Little Bean Nutrition. How are you? I'm so well, thank you. How are you? Yes, very cold. We're both in Tassie for all those playing at home, freezing our toes off. There is snow on the mountain. When I say mm. mountain, Mount Wellington. <laughs> can you, actually, can you see Mount Wellington from where you are? I can see like the back end of it. Okay. Like, you know, that little a second, like smaller part of the yes. mountain that has that kind of right angle to it. We can yeah. see that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. I have no idea what that is, but. <laughs> I'm sure there's like a, I'm sure they've named it something. Yeah. <laughs> So everyone would have heard from the introduction that you are a nutritionist, Mm -hmm. a paramedic, and Mm -hmm. a mother. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's the trifecta there. You started out, like I'm going to say your first career was as a paramedic. 
Actually, did you do anything? What did you do before that? Or was that straight out of uni? That was, yeah, I went from high school at 18 into uni and then from uni to be a paramedic. So that was like first cab off the rank. Wow. Little baby Amy into the wild world of paramedicine. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about throw yourself in the deep end and swim, girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very eye opening. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I do want to touch on like a bit of the paramedicine as well, which yeah. is, you know, the, the flavor of today is obviously pediatric kind of nutrition. And I do want to flag the, the point that you're not just like a nutritionist. You've done a master's degree. You actually have a university qualification and people will probably be thinking, Oh, come on, Renee, you know, get off your hind horse with like your status and everything. But can I just say, I have seen people who have done like a weekend course on nutrition and they're like, I'm a nutrition consultant. It's to me, it's like the same flavor as lactation consultant. Mm. You know, my plumber can call himself a lactation consultant if he wants to, because there's not actually a specific you know, registered type of qualification. It's when you are accredited through the international system, so as an IBCLC, which are the only kind of um, allied healthcare professionals we refer for our clients. It's kind of the similar vein for a nutritionist, right? Yeah, which is incredibly frustrating. Ironically, we went through the exact same thing as a paramedic. So we're now after registered as paramedics, but that's started in 2018 prior to that same thing a first aider could call themselves a paramedic oh. joe blog off the, yeah joe blog off the street could call themselves a paramedic and unfortunately the same thing can occur with nutrition so yeah nutritionist is not a protected term it's really frustrating because i think it's really frustrating particularly in the pediatric space because it is children's health and well-being that we're talking about. You know, I have collectively spent seven years at university and that, you know, I have an understanding of anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, biochemistry, you know, and nutrition. And it grinds my gears to no end that those who have done really short courses even some of the longer courses that are out there, there's one company in particular and I have looked into their qualification because I thought from a niching perspective it could be interesting. Mm-hmm. It's very limited with the information that you are taught and provided and it is frustrating that it's not a protected term. So you can be voluntarily registered by mm-hmm. Nutrition Society of Australia it's quite a lengthy process. It only happens a couple of times a year. Um, you have to submit references and things like that, but that's voluntary. So that's on my very long list of things to do. And, you know, and I guess because of the lack of registration, CPD or continuing professional development and education is not mandatory. But I think, you know, if you're not keeping up to date with the latest research, that's negligent on your behalf. So, you know, you just count all those things as CPD I've actually just booked a conference in Brisbane for the end of the year to go to feeding workshop and Mm. so it it's targeted toward you know speeches and OTs and things like that dietitians that work in with feeding therapy 
but I find that space really fascinating. I'm not a feeding therapist. I'm not qualified to be a feeding therapist and I have no intention to do so, but the information provided is fascinating. And so I'm like, I'm really excited. It's like four day course and for for purely just to broaden my knowledge is is all that I want to do that for. And I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Also looking forward to locking myself in a hotel room for (laughs) one night. (laughs) And getting yourself some sleep. Exactly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But that's, I mean, that's that's fascinating in and of itself in the sense that, you know, you're saying you're not going to become a foodie therapist, but the information that you gain and the knowledge is power and you are inevitably going to be weaving that into your own practice and your clients are going to be benefiting from that like a hundredfold. So, yeah. Absolutely. I work with or I already work with, you know, it is within my scope to look after clients who have selective eaters. I think they're commonly referred to as picky eaters. I don't love terming it picky. (laughs) We're going to talk about selective um, selective eating um, in a minute. Yeah. And so, yeah, if I can just take some of that information, again, I'm not going to be a feeding therapist, but if I can take some of the information I have learned from that conference and weave it into my practice with my selective eaters, like to be able to just provide them with better care and more up-to-date care is just, that's the best. I love learning and it's so important to stay up-to-date with things. And so, yeah, I'm really excited. I love it. I love the fact that you're just like, I'm not going to moonlight at this. I'm just, I'm, mm. I'm all in and it's fantastic. And, you know, what a, I mean, I don't want to be shaming those people <laughs> too much, mm. but, you know, the ones who are doing the, you know, weekend courses or whatever. Mm. But I would imagine that, you know, the advice that they're giving you as a client potentially not as holistic, not really armed with, you know, the correct maybe guidelines or, or, or what, what What are the kind of detrimental factors that you can see from a person who's perhaps not as qualified as you? Yeah, look, and it is, it does come down to the individual. A lot of people that have done these sort of shorter courses that aren't university-based, some of them I'm aware of do have university degrees in other spaces, which is wonderful. A lot of them do stay up to date with the latest research, which is also wonderful. I think the biggest thing that frustrates me is the misinformation that is shared. So things like one of the things that really grinds my gears is this concept that there's a dairy ladder outside of that that is involved with allergies. And again, that's not my space. I don't deal with kids with allergies that are on dairy ladders and things like that or egg ladders. But this concept that dairy should be introduced you start with ghee and butter and then you can move to kefir and then you can move to greek yogurt and then you can move to cow's milk like that's just nonsense that's not scientifically based it that there's not the only dairy ladder that matters is the one that has you know i think it's imas imas that has to do with reintroducing dairy to a child that has had cmpa or cmpi and it's this and i think it is this sense of privilege it's it's you know I see firsthand as a paramedic the the health inequalities that are experienced by our population and is this concept that you know organic is best and that's the only way to feed your child and it's that um you know the health star rating is flawed for this reason and you shouldn't you know you shouldn't do x y and z but 
you know, or home cooked meals are the only way to go. And in order to ensure your child's iron intake is adequate, you must be preparing chicken liver pate and, <laughs> you know, serving that to them every day. And it's just people don't have the money, people don't have the knowledge, people don't have the skills, people don't have the inclination. And it is just this really privileged point of view that is really not taking into consideration that there is a really broad spectrum of human beings out there and we are all products of you know socioeconomic status our demographic and that plays a really large part in what we are capable of as adults and what we are capable of providing for our children and as long as you are doing your best the rest does not matter. And that's going to look different for every single family. And it's this sort of concept that in order to be doing things right, you have to be doing it this certain way. And it, it's just not the case. And it puts a lot of undue pressure on families. And it really grinds my gears. And that yeah. is probably the thing that frustrates me the most. It's this privileged position that not everybody is lucky to have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting because in the previous podcast that I've just done with Dr. Bryony Hill, we were talking about weight stigma and mm. she was saying how, you know, particularly for like her field is health and well-being in that kind of preconception stage. And she, she was saying, she's like, every single person knows that in order to be healthy, you know, you need to up your fruit, you need to up your veggies, lower your sugar, do some exercise. She's like, we're all very clear on that. But the thing that is kind of impeding from achieving that are so many different factors. Like you say, socioeconomical status, inclination, time, you know, as she said, Women can write it down on the shopping list. We're going to get all those veggies. They can go to the shops, get the veggies. Then they get it home. I don't know how to cook the veggies. I don't have time to cook the veggies. Like so many, so many different things. And that uh, it is, it's true that it just depends on the person that you are. We're all very aware of it. <laughs> we yeah, just need yeah. to like, you know, be a little bit more compassionate, I think, about Absolutely. everyone's kind of position in this world. So... God, that just went really deep for the beginning of it. You know, on the podcast, normally, normally we hit that level around fifty to seventy percent of the interview on stage. But I'm, I'm so this this is a true representation of Amy and I behind the scenes. I think yeah, <laughs> we're two very passionate women. Oh God. Okay, so. Gosh, where are we going to start? We decided offline that obviously we're going to talk about kids' nutrition and we came up with four topics that we really wanted to focus in and narrow in on. So we're going to look at, today we're going to look at starting solids, progressing solids, what do we call Not picky eating, selective selective selective. eating, and then weaning as well. So with weaning, are we talking you know, boob to food type thing or? Yeah. So, yeah, we can touch on that probably in the starting solids and even progressing solids really because it's all very intertwined. But I do have a lot of clients come to me, you know, at that sort of 11, 12-month mark when they're Mm -hmm. looking at weaning from bottles or even from the boob. I obviously don't 
you know, I have a lot of clients ask me about overnight weaning, but that's not my space because if you choose not to feed your little one overnight, you have to find an alternative settling method. Yeah. And I, um, that's not my space. Um, <laughs> we have another so, friend in that space, Hannah do, Clark yeah. from um, Kin um, Postpartum. So yeah. you guys can look her up. She was on the podcast recently and I don't have, I don't have the episode number, but yes, you can look her up. She's definitely, yeah. that's her forte. Exactly. So that's not overnight weaning, not my space, but certainly during the day, I often have clients come to me to say like, where do I go from here? You know, whether that's, there's a couple of bottles or boob feeds left to wean or whether there is a lot of bottles breastfeed to wean and sort of some guidance sort of when we're really getting to that point where food needs to start to, I guess, take precedence over milk feeds. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Let's, okay, I want to talk about that first stage of like weaning, to starting solids. Now, I have a bug to bear on this, talking about mm. years being ground. One of the first things that mothers, families, caregivers are recommended is that rice cereal, Amy. Mm. Can yeah. we talk about that rice cereal for a minute? Because for all those playing at home, if you have not had a child... <laughs> <laughs> or if you're at the stage where you're about to start solids, for some reason there appears to be some guideline out there that says start them on this iron-fortified rice cereal. And let's just think about a rice cereal for a second. Do you honestly think that that is going to be an appetising starter mm. for solids? I tasted it. I got it because, like, you know, <laughs> being the good mum that I wanted to be and I'm listening to the professionals here, went and went and got my rice cereal and I made it up. Oh, my goodness. I was like, that is disgusting. I am not mm. even. I, I, I was just like, I, if I'm not, e- if I can't eat it, I'm not going to give it to Eva, not a chance in hell. And so what did we go for? Sweet potato. Mm. We did sweet potato because I was like, apparently that's quite, good (laughs) you know as as a starter it's had a lot of success in the past according to my friends let's go with that what is going on with this rice cereal I think it is based off of and again like you know you don't know what you don't know and a lot of families you're right a pediatrician a GP will recommend rice cereal now I'm not anti it because again let's you know health is complex and not everybody has the knowledge. Yep. And so, but the reason behind it is that it is iron fortified and you hit that sort of six month mark and our little people are no longer able to reach iron requirements through breast milk alone. Formula is a little bit different because it's fortified, but the rice cereal is quite heavily fortified with iron and that is the theory, that it is iron rich, but you are correct. It is, well, heavily processed. It's rice. It's not, it's not a whole grain. It, there are quite high levels of arsenic in rice, which is not particularly good for our babies. It is iron fortified, which on one hand is wonderful because it will enable iron requirements to be met. However, the type of iron that it is through fortification is what's referred to as non-heme iron, but not from an animal. And that's a whole lot harder for the body to absorb. So, and its bioavailability is a lot 
smaller. So from a source of non-heme iron, you're absorbing anywhere between 1 and 15% of that iron. So if, you know, if it contains, you know, 60 grams of iron, you're only getting 1 to 15% of that 60 grams being absorbed by the body. And it's a whole lot harder because the type of iron that it is, it needs to be converted to a more readily absorbable form of iron. So it's a stepwise approach as opposed to an animal or a heme source of iron is already in the form that is able to be absorbed by the body. So it's, you're looking at closer to 40% of an animal source of iron is able to be absorbed. So it, it's great because it contains a lot of iron, but the fact that it's fortified, it's manufactured iron, it's not... It's not good quality iron. It's designed for mass production. Those boxes of rice cereal are not expensive. So that quality iron is, is low. It's not readily absorbed and the bioavailability of it is really small. And that type of iron can cause quite a lot of constipation. I was which, just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, which our little people are already, as a normal part of starting solids, are already going to experience because they've never had to digest anything other than breast milk or formula before so you add in any form of substance that contains fiber that is naturally harder for the body to break down it creates bulk in the stool and they are not used to passing firmer stool and so it but that iron fortification makes that a whole lot worse and so it's certainly nothing I have. It's not something I have bought in the past. I, I have I had no intention of using it with Franklin, but that's not to say using it is wrong or bad. It's just there are definitely other foods you could focus on that were a a more effective means of reaching iron requirements and a lot gentler on the digestive system that you could start with. So okay, so let's say someone comes to you and says, "I want to start solids." Mm. What are what are your top kind of what are your top foods and do you do you serve them individually so like sweet potato alone you know peas alone or are you you know in that bucket where it's just like yep put them all together we're okay yeah so I think it I guess the first thing I would look at if someone did come to me to start solids is a has your baby met the signs of developmental readiness are they developmentally ready to start solids if that is the case, then I would suggest, you know, are you wanting to do puree or a finger food based approach or a combination of the two? And again, you will see this is a very divisive topic in the nutrition, well, not really in the nutrition industry, but in the motherhood space, if you like. <laughs> in the parenting sector, <laughs> it <That's> divides. Right. <laughs> oh, it does. And you will have some baby led weaning purists that make me want to poke my eyes out but <laughs> I am of the opinion that the best way to feed your baby is the way that you feel most comfortable and confident and you know this needs to be an enjoyable process for your baby because it's a huge learning curve it is something that needs to be enjoyable and in order for your baby to enjoy it you need to be comfortable and enjoying the process as well so if that is if that means for your family you do purees that is fine. If you do exclusively finger food, that too is fine. If you do a combination of the, of the two, amazing. It, it literally does not matter. As far as introducing food, it was sort of the old advice that you need to introduce like sweet potato for three days, avocado for three days, the next food for three days and do them individually. That's no longer the advice. 
that you can, unless you have family history of some weird allergies, like say mum or dad is allergic to avocado or kiwi fruits, or you know, you might want to be mindful or have a higher index of suspicion where that is concerned. Mm-hmm. But typically now you can do any of the low allergen foods, so not the top nine allergens, you can introduce together. So I think Franklin's first meal, we did largely finger food, but if we'd had mashed potato the night before, he had mashed potato the following day. Like I, I certainly started solids and ensured that what he was eating was reflective of what we ate. And we sometimes ate mashed veggies. So he eats mashed veggies. Sometimes we'll have soup. So he had soup. And so I think the first thing we ever did was I feel like we offered banana, mm-hmm. avocado, and sweet potato. That was like the first week. We just dabbled in those no pressure, literally cut up a finger of avocado and waited to see what he did with it. And that's typically what I say to families is that first week or so, particularly if you're doing finger food, just let them experiment. This is something they've never done before. And whilst it's really important always to have no expectation where meals yeah. are concerned, it is just familiarization in those first couple of weeks like just let them experiment figure out what's going on there is no pressure to rush into things and then once they've kind of got the hang of it whether that's they're comfortable with a spoon going in their mouth whether that's they're comfortable picking up food or having food handed to them finger food then start to look toward building a balanced meal when you do offer food I guess yeah I'd love to I've got two questions one are there guidelines, and I, I know how you, you, you know, you couched my initial question was, you know, are they ready, you know, developmentally mm. ready? So is that with, you know, the head, they're able to sit in a high chair, you know, hold their head, things like that. I, I know some people are like, oh, we started around six months or we started around eight months. Is there a, there's, and I don't think there is anymore, but is there a hard and fast kind of age? No, it's oh sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm just my backup. Okay. My backup thing is: is there an age where you're like, abs- even if like, absolutely, do not start before this age, or is it all around the physical development? I would say the physical development is the biggest thing, and yep. most children won't reach those physical milestones until closer to six months. Yep. There will be a variation of normal, and so some may meet at four and a half months. I would say absolutely do not start solids before four months of age, that your baby's gut is just not ready for solids. You know, newborns are born with a leaky gut. It's just natural. That is just the natural part of being a newborn. There's nothing wrong with them. That's just normal. And it takes a little while for that to no longer be leaky. And it's really important that their gut is ready to start solids. So if you had a really physically advanced baby and let's hypothesize that they had met the signs of readiness at three and a half months old, their gut's just not ready. So and there's also no need. Like don't don't make life harder for yourself either. Like the moment it's hard you start, to make kids food. It is. <laughs> my God, take me back to the days where all I had to do was sit on the couch and feed Frank, like put my boob in his mouth and feed him, like <laughs> as opposed to preparing meals. Like, yeah, there's just no rush. Like yeah. your baby doesn't physiologically require food before six months of age. If, as I said, like if they've met those signs at around four and a half, five months of age, like yeah, you can do it if you want to. Again, it's not necessary. Don't make your life harder. Closer to six months is more than appropriate. But basically what you're looking for is 
They don't need to sit entirely independently in the high chair. They just have to have enough core strength so that they can sit in there without slumping forward or slumping to the side. And yeah. if that means you've got to prop them up a little bit with a, like a rolled up tea towel or, yeah. you know, yeah. a hand towel, like that's okay. But as long as with that little bit of support, yeah. they're capable of sitting upright, that's sort of the key thing, that along with adequate head and neck strength. And that they're both just safety things. Your child should be sitting upright when they're fed. I have seen babies be fed in those like reclined baby rockers. Don't do that. That's not safe from a choking perspective. Have them sit upright. You know, their airways are a little bit floppy as little people. They're just not well developed. And so upright is the safest. And in order to be able to do that physically, they have to have enough core strength, head and neck Mm. strength to be able to sit upright. And then the others are... I guess functionally beneficial. So the fact that they're interested in your food, again, a lot of babies at even three months old, they're interested in everything. So that is not like you could have a tooth. They've got shiny balls in their <laughs> Exactly. So that's certainly not a key indicator of starting solid. Like that would be the least important. But it okay. is beneficial that they're interested because that'll just optimize the learning opportunity. Yeah. If you do want to do finger foods, their ability to like reach out and grab from you can be really beneficial just because you know that sort of offering vertically in the air can be a great first step to taking finger foods from you and bringing them to their mouth so that reach and grab can be beneficial and then the final one is the loss of the tongue thrust reflex again it's not essential it's a protective mechanism so that if you're three and a half months old pick something up off the floor that tongue thrust reflex should in theory kick in and avoid them from swallowing whatever it was or choking on whatever it was if you're going to puree feed your baby functionally beneficial for that to be gone otherwise you put a spoon in their mouth and maybe your egg will just come straight back out I found Franklin hadn't lost it quite yet when we started him on finger foods but it was actually quite beneficial because that sort of poking of his tongue out kind of helped him explore the finger food so when you're doing finger foods it's not really necessary for it to be gone and again, we don't want it to be a key indicator because some babies don't lose that reflex until closer to seven months of age. And we don't really want to unnecessarily be delaying the introduction of solids because of the nutrient requirements that are that need to be met. And so if that was the only thing stopping you, I probably wouldn't it wouldn't be something I wouldn't recommend that be sort of the key thing that you were waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. I just want to touch on oh, pardon the pun, but touching food. Okay, Mm. so actually giving them the independence to explore and feel and observe. And it makes me um, think back to, and I'm I'm like, like I literally am just thinking of a thousand things at the minute. But what I want to know from you is obviously there's this kind of nutritional requirement for our Mm -hmm. children to have solid food. But then there's also this ability to touch and feel and observe the food. How important is that to them? And it's probably going to be weaved into this selective eating, I would, I would probably assume, mm. concept. And I'm happy to go straight there if that's, if that's the case around, you know, being able to interact with it because I, I have found previously that, you know, when I would feed Eva, like I, we had one of those 
very cheap IKEA um, high chairs because I was advised that they are the cleanest they can mm-hmm. ever be because you can just hose them out the back. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to worry about pulling too much apart. And I would just like throw things down on there and just like carry on doing whatever I need to do. And she would make an absolute mess. And I'm not trying to be like, you know, the greatest mother in the world and blow smoke up my ass, but mm-hmm. she was a very uh, flexible eater. She would mm-hmm. try lots of different things and I felt like it may have been the fact that I would just let her touch it and explore and things like that. Whereas I've seen other people, and I don't want this to be comparisonitis, and I, this is why I'm asking you because I want to know if there's any research or anything behind this. People who were like, oh, my God, I can't deal with the mess. I just literally have to take the spoon from the bowl into the mouth. Like, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do not touch it. I can't deal with the mess. And I have seen progressively in some instances that those children have become more selective with what they'll eat because they have a resistance to try other things. Is there any theory behind my madness or like? (laughs) Yeah, you're totally correct. So research has shown that it is definitely a contributing factor to selectivity down the line. Mm -hmm. And it is just that you know, it's so important to let them explore. It's so important for them from a sensory perspective to be okay with different textures. And, you know, it's all about exposure. I have a lot of clients that are like, oh, exposure, 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 but it's true. And that exposure doesn't have to always be through taste. It can be through sight. It can be through feeling. And the first like step to acceptance like oral acceptance of a food is being comfortable to touch it Mm -hmm. and being comfortable with the way that food feels because particularly when it gets to self-feeding you need to touch food and this is why I do really love finger foods and it is certainly why I recommend introducing finger foods the the research sort of says before nine months of age so if you start on purees totally fine just start to dabble in some finger foods before or closer to the nine-month mark. And that's just about, it's called the window of opportunity. It's where our little people are really, really open to everything, flavours, textures, everything. And we really want to take advantage of that because it, it does, it leads to a greater acceptance going forward. And the other reason I love finger foods is it's, it creates that level of autonomy. You know, the, the, I guess the trap we can kind of fall into with the spoon feeding, and you can receptively spoon feed, do not get me wrong. It's just a lot harder to do and your own personal feelings can kind of get in the way sometimes, particularly if you've been advised to start solid so your child sleeps through the night or, <laughs> you know, like where you feel that pressure that your child must eat in order yeah. to sustain sleep or to, or even those those families that are, told to start solids because it will help weight gain and it's like if your child's not gaining weight on on formula or breast milk then they need more formula or breast milk they don't necessarily need more food and you know it's that sort of you can very easily and it's often not at all intentional fall into the trap of kind of force feeding and whereas when your baby is left to their own devices to learn how to self-feed from the beginning they are in charge of what and how much they eat and that's really important. You know, they have this innate ability as an infant to 
regulate their appetite. And as you probably touched on earlier with your other um, podcast that you did, you know, we have been trained to ignore that, particularly as women. You know, we are told to ignore if we are hungry because we don't need that food. We often, you know, restrict, which leads to binging, and so you ignore your fullness cues. We are told that portion sizes are important, whereas our little people have this, you know, it's like a newborn that demand feeds. They know how much they need, and it is those babies, if, you know, a lot of them, if they, you know, if they typically sleep a lot during the day, they need to make up for the calories that they didn't get during the day overnight, and so they'll feed more overnight. You know, they are expert calorie regulators and it's our job as parents and to avoid diet cultures creeping in on ruining them that we really nurture that innate ability and so that's another reason I really love finger food because it puts the control in their hands from the beginning and I just you know now I I know if Franklin isn't eating like I have no anxiety over over it like if he like last night he he literally threw all of his dinner on the floor. He dropped every single piece of food off the high chair tray. And I said to my husband, I was like, oh, that's not ideal. But he wasn't hungry. Like he would have eaten if he was hungry. And yeah. so he still slept through the night. Like he slept, everything was normal. He, I, We think he's teething at the moment and he just wasn't, he wasn't feeling yeah. it. And so it's just that I've, I've spent, you know, what would it be, 14 months old. So I've spent eight months nurturing that ability for him to self-regulate and, and I trust him and there will be days where he will finish his plate and I have to go and get him seconds and he has eaten more than I have and again it's just trusting that today he's growing a lot or today he crawled around a lot more than he did yesterday and he's hungry and oh that it, it's but it it's so hard like I try to tell myself that all the time because I remember you know we flick from and I think this is probably part of the issue as well that as mothers we're constantly put under the spotlight around what our child weighs you know particularly mm. in the newborn period you know oh you're not allowed you're either not allowed to leave the hospital or you've got to be heavily monitored if your baby's mm. lost more than 10 percent birth weight and then you know you're at all these maternal child health nurse kind of appointments and they're constantly measuring and their clothes off they're very particular oh Mm. you know you're tracking along you know this percentile blah 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 and then it comes to solids and I feel like we're all just at a loss because we've been so heavily regulated on our child's weight and then all of a sudden it's like oh go with the flow she'll be Mm. right you know whatever and I'm not saying that we're not to you know, closely monitor a newborn's weight. But I just feel like it is a very different and it's a very hard transition to make as mothers from monitor, monitor, monitor to throw it on the high chair. <laughs> it gets thrown off. It's okay. I really, really struggled with it. Like I mm. was like, oh, my God, she's not eating. And I was one of the people who was told, you know, once she starts solids, she's going to be sleeping through the night and, mm. you know, these, and I, I knew that that was complete BS. So I didn't buy into that part. But I think as a mother and someone who is extremely passionate about nutrition, mm. that the, the internal anxiety for me was, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, she's not eating anything. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to share a tip 
that I found really changed the game for me and our family was that we moved from plating up, like I would Mm -hmm. cook, um, like, you know, at the stereo oven, whatever, and I would plate up close there and everyone would be served a plate. Now what we do is feast style. And so the feast style for all those playing at home is all the different components of the meal is put onto, you know, the central family table and you pick and choose what you want from those plates and you make almost, it's like, it's like poke bowl every night, you know, type of thing. But you get to pick and choose. And I found that that was a game changer for Eva because she felt a sense of independence. She had a bit of power as well because she got to pick and choose because the only two things that we dictate is the time that we eat and what goes on that table. And if she says to us, you know, I'm full or whatever, there's sometimes that I look at her and I go, come on, mate, like, mm you know, let's do our best. Mm. And there's other times where I'm like, no, she's genuinely eaten enough and, you know, that is it. And I kind of, I get into this, get into this moment and I'm sure I'm not alone where we'll be at friends or relatives' houses and they'll be like, oh, if you just have two more mouthfuls, you can have dessert. Mm. And I'm like, please don't say that to her. Because it, as you were saying, it is going against their expert level on regulating their appetite and their fullness and things like that. And I think, you know, generations before us were always told, you better wipe that plate clean, do not Mm -hmm. waste any food, you know, which is fine. But at the same time, I think we've got to be really careful with the messaging that we're sending out of the kids. Definitely. Definitely. You know, it, it's devastating that children as young as five are being diagnosed with eating disorders. Mm. That is just, I have a friend who's got a family member whose little girl has just been diagnosed, like been admitted to hospital with an eating disorder at five years of age, would not drink water because she thought she would get quote unquote fat. Like oh, no. it is devastating devastating and it is our job as parents to avoid that happening yeah to our children you know we cannot control if we can individually do that with our own children and everybody does that those awful words those labels will never be used in schools and our children will never think less of themselves because of the size of their body and if we can each individually you know we we cannot if if 50% of us do that. We cannot control what happens outside of our home and what our children listen to. But it is if we really nurture that, you know, we we owe it to our children to avoid that. Like that is just a devastating. Mm -hmm. The the fact that a a five-year-old can be diagnosed with an eating disorder, you know, that will impact that little girl's life forever. Mm. She will always have a complex relationship with food. And that is heartbreaking because food should be enjoyed and, it can do some wonderful things for your body that have nothing to do with your body size. And that it's really sad. It's really yeah, sad. Gosh, that is super, yeah. super sad. Yeah. I've I, even I, had I, to say to like family members, there's just like no talk of body size in this house. That will never be. Yeah. That does not, 
your self-worth is not tied to your body size and and there will be no discussion of that in this house because I, you know, yes, Franklin is somewhat protected as a male, but it's not to say that men don't experience it, mm. but it it is still vital in our house that we never speak of those sorts of things. It's about health and healthy habits that yeah. have nothing to do with our body size and the way that we look. Yes, I, I do want to touch on this, Amy, because that's something that we are very conscious of in our house as well, particularly around educating Eva as to the nutritional benefits of particular food types. So it's not around this is because um, she must have watched something or, you know, childcare or you don't know where they pick them up, but mm. it's, they're sponges, right? And so we went through a, a, a big narrative around, oh, that's good food and that's bad food. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure every parent kind of, you know, experiences this, but it was around the fact that, and I'm, again, it comes back to I, I'm a biochemist. I understand what, you know, particular food groups do for you. And so we had to sit down, you know, it's, you know, carrots, carrots are great because you can see in the dark, mm-hmm. you know, not carrots are good food. And mm. so we had to change the discussion in our house around there's sometimes food and then there's all the time food. Yeah, because we were slipping into this. Oh, but that's bad food. So and so had bad food the the other day. Why? Why is so and so allowed to have bad food? And I'm like, mm. whoa, <laughs> whoa, the horses yeah. on this. Do you, in your consultations with like your clients and things like that, and when we're talking about, you know, selective eating or just like knowledge for your clients, is there anything around language and the types of things that you that you know the toolkits that you can give these parents yeah so the I guess the first thing and this often ties into selectivity Mm. is I do not like food being referred to from a consumption perspective it it creates a sense of pressure Mm. and that will oftentimes have the opposite effect instead of encouraging consumption it will discourage consumption because they our little people don't like feeling pressure or, you know, you must eat that. Well, what if I don't want to? It's like that internal battle that yeah. goes on inside their head. And so instead I like to encourage parents to focus on the function of food. So as you say, carrots, so if you, you know, see in the dark, pumpkin makes you poo, you know, chicken <laughs> will make you, you know, chicken will make your muscles strong, you know, that's the, and, and you tailor it to the, the age of your child and it's still beneficial you know, our, our, you know, one-year-olds have a wonderful level of understanding. They may not be able to verbally communicate to you, but their understanding is wonderful and the things that they pick up on are incredible. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's why I like to stick to function. Absolutely do not use food as reward because it puts other foods on a pedestal. And mm. so it's that whole concept that, you know, um, like yogurt isn't, Yo- like Franklin might get yogurt after his dinner, but it's not dessert. It's part of the meal. Or if you're going to serve fruit with dinner, like serve it with the main meal. Yeah, he might eat the fruit first, but that's okay. It's just another food. And it this sort of and if, and again, it comes back to that selectivity. If you're offering 
a meal and your little person doesn't eat it so you go back to the kitchen which we all are somewhat guilty of to find something that they will eat that it makes that food more desirable because it's what they like it and you've and you've given it as a backup to the other food that they now see as less desirable and you know it's about just changing the narrative around around food it's not good and bad we don't have labels food is just food some foods do really cool things for your body and other foods don't do cool things for your body and that's Mm. okay and research has shown that restriction of foods creates a greater desire for those foods so if you are really conscious of restricting your child from um you know cakes and lollies and chocolate and like don't get me wrong, I'm not saying serve that every single day. Yeah. not what I'm saying. But it is, if you are consistently restricting that, the, the moment your five-year-old goes to a birthday party, that is all they are going to eat. Mm-hmm. And they are going to each eat large quantities of that food. And again, not good or bad. The only quote-unquote bad thing that's occurred there is that they see those foods as preferential or better than other foods. Whereas a cupcake is just a cupcake. It, it, yeah. it is what it is. It is there, there's nothing we have. It's us as adults that have these preconceived ideas as to what food is and isn't. And, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's really tricky because as 30-plus-year-olds, 20-plus-year-olds, we, we have been conditioned to think of foods as good and bad. Mm. And it really really hard to change that language when that is what you have heard growing up not through the fault of our parents yeah it's that's probably what they were taught and yeah exactly that's exactly right so it's really hard to kind of check in with the language and not to put your food your preconceived ideas of food on onto your children it's really hard I do want to ask because that is something that we have experienced in our house and you touched on it in the sense that say there's a meal that I've made and and Eva just goes, nope, not touching that, not a chance, big fat X on that, right? Mm -hmm. What is your recommendation? Because at them, like previously I would... I would kind of be like, oh, my God, I'll make another meal because I'm like, I just want you to be fed and blah, 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 mm. and all that kind of stuff. So I would I would always make a second meal. Mm-hmm. And I've been kind of testing her out in the sense that I'll always make sure, I forget where I read it or heard it, but someone said, particularly when you're doing feast-style meals, make sure that there's a safe food on the table, so something mm. that they're absolutely going to 100% eat. And for Eva, she is a carbomania mm. girl, like mm. probably most children. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a pasta, a bread, a rice, she's in it to win it. What, and, and, and now that she's getting older, so she's, you know, she's coming up to five in August, I'm starting to kind of be a bit more, no, this is what we're having for tea and albeit there might be, you know, a safe food. Sometimes there's not because I just haven't had the time. Mm. But what's your recommendation with that? If they are just a big, fat, hard no, do you kind of go, this is it? And, like, you don't even think about doing an alternative or, like, what do you do? What do you do, Amy? Yeah. So I 
always take the approach, and I even do this with Franklin. Franklin is not even remotely selective at this point. It yeah. certainly takes it around, I see it in clinic from about 15 months old, but yes. developmentally it's really common from sort of 18 months old. Yeah, into like when they learn work. that they're allowed to say no. Mm, <laughs> and it's that independence. Yeah. And it, it's actually called food neophobia, which is a fear of food. And so that sounds really serious. And it, it is very normal. It's developmentally normal. It is just that. And it's why kids like beige carbohydrates because a cracker out of a packet will always look the same. It will always taste the same. It will never look different. It doesn't matter if you buy that packet today or if you buy that packet in four weeks' time, it will still taste the same and it will still look the same. It's why fruits and vegetables tend to go out the window because a blueberry today might be a little more sour than a blueberry yesterday that was a mm -hmm. bit more sweet. And so it's that uncertainty and lack of familiarity and they sort of crave that that consistency from those types of foods there's also an argument that it's like evolutionary that white carbohydrates or beige carbohydrates are typically energy dense foods and to preference those things is beneficial if you're a cave child <laughs> in that you gotta go hunt and gather so why wouldn't you preference those like energy dense foods that you don't actually have to consume yeah yeah in order to that get makes your sense. energy requirements yeah so I always and I do this now is if is if we're having something that I'm like hmm, that's going to be stretching Franklin like it's not something we've served for a while or you know it's like we had we had like falafel bowls the other night for dinner and I saw that um, they look yum <laughs> yeah so we typically eat sort of tube sweet potato and we have um, kale with it, we saute some kale. And kale is obviously quite a bitter food. It's texturally odd. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll put a little bit on Franklin's plate. Who the heck knows? Maybe he'll yep. eat it. Yep. But I, am, I knew that he liked rice, he liked sweet potato, he likes falafels, and we had some other green veggies there for him as well that he historically has enjoyed. So I think that is key, is always ensuring there is something familiar or preferred on the place. And if your little person, say you've got three different foods, one or two of those are preferred foods, they don't touch the less preferred food. Keep in mind the fact that it's been tolerated on the place, they're happy to see it there, they might touch it, they might squish it. That is exposure, which leads to future acceptance via like oral consumption. But also that I always like to say to my clients, and this comes back to that relationship with food, if they have demolished the chicken nuggets and the potato, but they've left the green veggies, um, but they ask for more potato and chicken nuggets, you need to give more chicken nuggets and potato because yes, they're the blander vegetables. Yes, they may not have the same nutrients that the green vegetables have. But food isn't to be restricted if, you know, it, it's there. And, and again, going, well, you can't have any more chicken nuggets or potato because you haven't eaten your green veggies. They're going to want the potatoes and the chicken nuggets a bit more because, well, now you're telling them that they can't have it. And that mm -hmm. they already prefer that food. So now it's, and it's already on a pedestal just by, just naturally with no, I guess, overt effort on anyone's behalf. It's just a preferred food at the moment. So restricting it further just makes the desire for that food even greater and the potential acceptance of the green veggies even lower. So it's, it's sort of always encouraging or always exposing to un or less familiar, less preferred foods, mm -hmm. but ensuring there is 
always something that you know they know and love. And on that, I often say to my clients, be very mindful with those preferred foods when they're in this really fickle developmental period. And some kids buy, like go past this period and are even more selective and that becomes a selectivity issue, not a developmental thing, is rotate through those preferred foods. Because if you are continually providing chicken nuggets at every meal because that's their preferred food, yeah. Chicken nuggets are going to get real boring real quick because you're having them at every meal and you're just reducing the list of those preferred foods, whereas the intention is those preferred foods are a vehicle to acceptance of less preferred foods. Yeah. And you are slowly increasing acceptance of less preferred foods because those preferred foods are present, if that makes sense. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I, I was actually just thinking as you were saying that, I think I did this subconsciously. So another one of my little tips to kind of reduce the dinner table anxiety for me mm. was Eva prefers raw vegetables over cooked vegetables. And I was like, okay, well, stop, pardon the pun, trying to, you know, push shit up a hill. Mm. <laughs> and so yeah. as I'm chopping the veggies with dinner, I would make a little bowl up for her of like, you know, cut up carrots, capsicums, you know, cucumber, whatever. And initially I was like, and she was like, you know, I'm mother of the year. I let her watch TV after school, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, or, you know, do whatever. And, and so initially I thought to myself, Ooh, I don't know if she's going to buy this. So I sprinkled some sultanas, which are a hundred percent winners in our house, mm-hmm. sprinkled some sultanas in the bowl and I feel like she's kind of like Sultana watching TV, you know, Capscam watching TV. Oh, yeah, I'm eating that. And, like, for me, the vegetables are done. I'm like, mm. I don't care if you consume zero vegetables at dinner now. I know that you've had them really close to dinner. So for me, it was just like foot off the gas, anxiety level completely dissipated. But, yes, Spiking the veggie bowl with sultanas, that accepting mm. food, I think was, pre- yeah, it was, I would say is a game changer. Yeah, and I think too, for kids in this developmental phase and selective eaters that are clinically selective or clinically picky, fussy, whatever we want to call it, eating is not a pleasant experience. Mm. It's not, it doesn't. And it just doesn't come easy to some kids for whatever reason, whether that's a food aversion, like an oral aversion, whether that's, you know, I've had clients where that pressure's been put on them as parents to increase weight gain, increase weight gain, so they're force-fed their babies and then their babies are just like have this awful relationship with the high care and food because they're all they've ever known is to be force-fed. And mealtimes are anxiety-inducing and overwhelming for kids that are either in this very normal developmental period or who are selective. And so it is often as simple as reducing some of that overwhelm by keeping as much as you can familiar. And whether that's throwing in familiar food, I often say to my clients, like, have them sit at the same place on the dinner table so that there's a sense of ownership over that place at the dining table. Have the same plate and the same cup and the same utensils because it's just, one more thing that is familiar and looks the same. I always love creating like a mealtime routine for my family. So again, this does not have to be laborious, but for an older child, 
you know, like a five-year-old, it might be that we wash our hands before we have dinner or breakfast or lunch, but keep it the same for those mealtimes. Um, for little kids, it's as simple as, come on, Franklin, we're going to have brekkie now. He knows that we pop him in the high chair, he gets his smock on, and then he gets his food in front of him, but also signalling that the mealtime is going to end so that they start to kind of anticipate all they know and they get used to the fact that that mealtime will end. And so for us, that we say, this is how amazing little kids are. Like, we, we don't give them enough credit. They're amazing. Is we have forever, since we started solids, we dabbled in, like, the sign, like, the Auslan signs for finished. Yeah. But he never really talked to it. So we've just been saying to him, Franklin, are you all done? And at the end of a meal. And, like, that might, initially that started when everything was gone or whether he'd shown interest, disinterest in a meal. And we would say, are you all done, Franklin? Now, if he's finished, he looks at us, lifts up his plate and says, all done, like he's 14 months old. Like he's just absorbed that over the last yeah. eight months. Yeah. And so now that's what he does. And so that's our end of meal routine. And it's just, this is why kids who are selective and I have come to me, they're like, I don't understand. He'll eat at daycare. And they eat at daycare for two reasons. The daycare is regimented and yeah. is routine based. So they are offered snacks and food at regular intervals and those intervals are the same every single day. They have a mealtime routine and they've not intended to do that. It is just that they are forced to do that because they have 5, 10, 15 kids to look after so they have to be regimented in what they do. And there are other kids eating, which is why eating together is really important. It's yeah. that positive peer pressure. There's, And when I say peer pressure, it's not you must eat. It's just that everybody else is eating. So why the heck not join in? Because they're enjoying it, so maybe I'll enjoy it too. So that's another tactic for kids that are in selective periods is eating together. And I always say to my families, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, a nine-month-old that is just not interested in solids or whether it's a two-year-old that's in this fickle developmental period is sit there together. If your little person sees you enjoying food, they too will learn that that food is enjoyable. It will become familiar. It is just another exposure to somebody else eating food and seeing that it's pleasant, it's enjoyable, it's nothing to be fearful of. And, you know, I, I even see it with Franklin, like sometimes he, and, and every parent will resonate with this, is that you sit there and you're like, I know if you put that in your mouth, you would like it. And so it's really, you know, it's like, just taste it. Like, come on. And so we have, I've had clients that have said to me like, oh, I kind of like sneak it in their mouth. And I'm like, please don't do that. Because again, that is just ignoring their cues. It needs to be autonomous. They need to know they have control over, over what goes in their mouth. And so instead, a tactic that I, find really personally really effective and effective with my clients is um, if, we're, if we're eating the same, which we often do at like lunch and dinner, if we're eating the same food as Franklin, I'll it, say it's sweet potato. He's got little cubes of sweet potato and we've got cubes of sweet potato. I'll stab a sweet potato on my fork and I'll be like, Franklin, and I'll take it to big open mouth chewing, make, make it obvious that I'm enjoying it, like, oh, that's so tasty. And if that doesn't work, I'll take a piece of sweet potato off Franklin's place and put it in my mouth and like really, like really get his attention, do that open mouth chewing, you know, make it really obvious that I'm enjoying it. Nine times out of 10, he will pick up a piece of sweet potato and put it in his mouth and be like, oh yeah, I do like that and finish off his meal. And so it's just, it's, it's the easy default is kind of forcing it upon them or being verbally encouraging, which 
is also perceived as a form of pressure by them. That yeah. sort of, come on, I know you're Come on, that, yeah, yeah. Couple, <laughs> couple more mouthfuls. <laughs> exactly, which is, you know, it can seem really harmless and it's really innocent. It, there's never, like, any sort of manipulation behind mm. it as a parent. It's just sort of, why the heck not? But they, in their sort of relatively simplistic thinking, is that is perceived as pressure. and. Yeah. And as I said before, like it has that opposite effect. It, it doesn't encourage consumption. It, it, it does the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Oh, Amy, I knew we were going to run out of time before we ran out of <laughs> topics. We could talk forever on this because I have we like could. so many, as, you, as you're talking, I've got like five different things that I wanted to talk to you about, <laughs> but I'm going to write them down. But are we going to finish with a little bit of a rapid fire? Okay. Yeah. Ooh, all right. Okay. First cab off the rank. <laughs> You've probably spoken about it in the beginning, but what is what is the biggest like a myth or misconception that you have heard at, in kind of in your nutrition or paid nutrition industry? Oh, that's a good one. The biggest myth. Oh, we've, I mean, we've touched on a few already, yeah, but like, yeah, I reckon look, the rice cereal would have to be up there. You know the starting your baby early on solids would be up there as well you know yeah. I think it's, it's weird that there is this I, I honestly don't know where it stems from is this sort of belief that like the number of people that start their babies at four months old I I, I don't I think that comes from pediatricians and I, I would love to sit down with a pediatrician and just be like yeah. why like it's not like the research says you know starting solids between like at around six months of age but not before four months yeah but I don't somewhere know along the way it's probably been misinterpreted or yeah, or, yeah something something's gone awry <laughs> and I think probably the other one is that starting solids will make your baby sleep through oh, the night that's yeah, no, no. Yeah, that's not the case Every, everyone put idea. that one in the bin <laughs> oh yeah big time okay and the, the other ones are probably around being a mother, mm. which we've already touched on the fact that you are a beautiful mum to Franklin. Mm-hmm. But what is your top tip for birthing mothers? Oh, I would say, and we have personally spoken about this, is I think in the process of, if we're going to talk about the birthing process mm-hmm. and that birthing of your child, is there is nothing more empowering than knowledge. Now, I am a bit of a control freak and I went into my birth with all of these preconceived ideas of what I wanted and it was natural, you know, um, no pain relief. I, I wanted to have a vaginal birth. I wanted to be in the water, you know, I all this stuff that I wanted. That is not what happened. Um, it did not go to plan. And I I am saddened by the way that our birth occurred, but I know logically the only reason I feel sad about it is because I went in with preconceived ideas. And so, but on the flip side of that is I've told our birth story to a lot of people and they're like, oh, that's so traumatic. And I don't feel traumatised because I was armed with all of the knowledge. I know that everything that happened on that day happened for a reason and it needed to happen, that all of the interventions that occurred, occurred because they had to. And that is what brought our boy into the world safely. And we teased on the edge 
of that safety line. But I had the most beautiful team of specialists that looked after us. And it is absolutely not what I envisaged. And I feel a bit ripped off that I didn't get what I wanted out of our birthing experience. And I know going forward, I can't have that because of, you know, it's a physiological issue. Like I, I can't have that vaginal birth that I want if I want to birth safely. And so that's a bitter pill for me to swallow. But I do not, I can comfortably say whilst I feel sad, I do not feel traumatized. And that okay. is because I asked all of the questions and I knew that everything, and I think we did a, um, we did a calm birth course with Erin mm-hmm. yep. about hypnobirthing co. Yep. And, you know, I, I naturally have that ability to question and I'm not afraid to ask a medical professional why something is happening because I have, I work in the medical profession. I'm a paramedic. Yeah. And, but it, it, she reiterated that, that that's okay in the birthing space. And, and it's such a pivotal piece of advice. Like if, if you take nothing else from any prenatal class or birthing class, it's ask questions because if you are armed with the knowledge, it might not go to plan, but you will feel a whole lot less traumatised knowing that what happened happened for a reason. Oh my God, this is, I mean, this is so strange for me because the previous podcast I asked Bryony and she said her top tip was speak up, Mm. just speak up because it is about being heard and, and, and feel like you're being listened to. And as you said, you know, it it wasn't textbook, you know, your birth, but you weren't traumatized because you Mm. obviously felt like you had been heard and listened to and then the interventions that were carried out had a purpose and a reason. It wasn't just because, you know, someone's got somewhere to be, you know, type of thing. So, okay. So weird that this is happening. Mm, Yeah. All right. So you've touched on calm birth classing. Classing. That's good English, (laughs) Renee. Classes. What, did you have a go-to resource, like a book or a workshop or something like that, or something that, you know, you might take in the next time if and when you have another baby? I will. So we know we have to have a cesarean Mm -hmm. next time, and that's fine. I'll probably do Erin's calm birthing class for cesareans, Um, Mm -hmm. and I have had friends that have had both elective cesareans and cesareans that have been required for medical reasons and have had beautiful births. That would be me. (laughs) Yep, that's exactly right. I am going to ask our OB about maternal assisted cesarean because I would love, love, love to do that. Yeah. So I will definitely do that again. I, as I said, I have had a very beautiful breastfeeding journey. It has, it could have gone really pear-shaped because Frankel was in special care for two weeks and was fed via an NG tube. So I had to basically pump for the first two weeks. So it is, like, it's just, it's, I've, oh, I just feel so lucky that, like I said to my husband the other day, Franklin has weaned as of two days ago. He, we were oh. I was holding, uh, mm, yeah, I was holding on to the morning feed. He's done it all of his own. Like I have been very baby led where that's concerned. And we have, he has always been routine based because of special care. Like they had him, he never got the opportunity to really demand feed. I still did like, I, once we got home, I was led by him, but he had already been put into a bit yeah. of a routine. Yeah. 
But, you know, I didn't force the overnight weaning. It, I just, I was quite surprised when it happened. And same with this. I, I had hoped I could hold on to that morning feed until he was two, but he's decided he doesn't want it anymore. I keep offering just in case. But I said to my husband, I was like, as sad as I am that he has weaned, you know, he's 14 months old. And my God, I am so grateful for the journey we had and for it to have never, ever been a burden. Mm-hmm. I have never felt tied to breastfeeding I have never felt it has always been beautiful because I've never felt like it was like he's just I don't know he's just I've been led by him but you know I didn't have that baby that I felt was constantly on me and I resented the fact that I breastfed I never felt that way and I'm so grateful for that but I think a large part of our breastfeeding journey again comes back to education I actually saw I saw Anne-Marie from the Lactation Network. We were 24 weeks pregnant. I went and saw her and I said to her, I know I haven't birthed my baby yet, but it is so important to me that if I can, I breastfeed. What can I do now to, you know, I understand that, you know, for whatever reason after he's born, maybe I can't breastfeed. Maybe it's not enjoyable. Maybe there's a mental health reason behind it. Maybe I physically can't breastfeed. But what can I do to ensure that, between now and then, I set myself up with the best possible chance to breastfeed because it's really important to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that was key to going into, I think I've read research, and please correct me if I'm wrong if you've read this, but one of the key predictors of breastfeeding success, and it's not the only predictor because, as we know, there are lots of reasons why breastfeeding doesn't work, is the intention to breastfeed. And yeah. it's going into to breast the breastfeeding journey with the strong desire to breastfeed. And of course, I have had girlfriends that have had that desire but still couldn't breastfeed. So it's not the only kind of thing that impacts it. But it then also was wonderful. We had this unexpected special care um, admission, and Anne Marie just held my hand through the entire two weeks. Mm. Like I would not have. She was like my fairy godmother. She was yeah. just best I hold such a soft spot for her because you know she and again like that it it could have gone really pear-shaped in special care yeah but it didn't and I I I thank her for that 100% and again it just comes back to education I armed myself with all of the knowledge to go I'm that person that if I do everything I can to ensure something goes smoothly and it doesn't go smoothly well I did everything I could yeah, you're happy to yeah accept yeah. that. Yeah, I think yeah. the statistics are that 95% of women are physiologically and biologically able to breastfeed, and I think it's a similar statistic of women who want to breastfeed, so they, they go into their motherhood mm. journey wanting to breastfeed, but it drops down to like around 30 35% of women are breastfeeding at that six-month mark. And the reason why it's such a huge drop-off, and I spoke to Dr. Pamela Douglas from Possums about this, is not because of physiological issues, right, where like 95% of women are, are capable of doing it. It's because they don't have the support. And it yeah. speaks true to the, the story that you just gave us in the sense that, you know, Anne-Marie was there 
to walk you through and hold your hand through that journey. And unfortunately, a lot of women either don't have access to, you know, a health professional who's able to assist them with that, or they just keep getting recurring issues like mastitis or pain or nipple thrush or nipple damage and things like that. And then they're just like, it is too hard. Or they've been given these triple feeding like Mm. regimes, which is just so unrealistic. And then they just, they literally say enough is enough. I can't do this anymore because of my physical and or mental recovery is just completely suffering. And then, you know, they flick over to an alternative and it makes mothers, there's a lot of shame behind it. Mm. You know, we engage clients who have have spoken to us from the get-go and said, this was my scenario. I didn't have birth trauma, but I would arguably have had, you know, breastfeeding trauma. I really want to give it a go this time, but I'm actually quite anxious about the whole concept. And the first thing that we do during their pregnancy stage is we engage them with an IVCLC and we begin that journey. We begin unpacking that trauma of what happened, what are we going to do to kind of set you up for the best breastfeeding journey possible? And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But similar to you, they are armed with all the information. They know that they were fully supported and they know that they have given it 110%. And, and that is all they want. You know, that's exactly. all they want. Hundred. Yeah. I think too, it also like just quickly like it's, it touches on the importance of continuity of care yes. because, you know, I, the other thing, and I, and I, I would love to, when we have one of our catch-ups, I need to actually ask Anne-Marie if she can remember, but she knew how important it was for me to breastfeed. Franklin was on the NG tube and the first day he required like formula for the first 24 hours because my milk was coming in and, you know, I, but again, I've been very lucky with my supply. We could have walked out of there a week earlier if we had gone home with bottles of formula. Mm-hmm. But she knew that I did not want to do that, that I wanted to give breastfeeding the best chance possible. I hated every second of my boy being in special care. Mm-hmm. I feel as though we were there for longer than we needed to be. I don't feel that he was given the opportunity to show how capable he was. Um, but I understand why. And it's important to be conservative when we're dealing with newborns, but I it was never raised with me and I have a sneaking suspicion. It is because Anne-Marie knew that I was not walking out of that hospital mm, formula feeding my baby if I didn't have to. Yeah. And for us it was, and again, personal decision, plenty of people do walk out of there with formula top-ups and mm-hmm. still have beautiful journeys or they're okay with formula top-ups, but for us, that wasn't what I wanted personally, but we. It, it, I'm surprised it wasn't raised with us, yeah. but I wonder if that was because Anne-Marie knew mm. that I was walking out of there and she knew and she only knew that because we had seen her previously. We were lucky enough and privileged enough to have private health insurance and so we got, you know, I had that continuity of care with my obstetrician, you know, um, with, with Anne-Marie because I had we had the money to go and see a lactation consultant before. And I guess we have the privilege of education and yeah. health literacy to know that we can do these things and arm ourselves with this knowledge. But 
again, if everybody was provided with the privilege of continuity of care, irrespective of all those other demographic mm -hmm. influences, that I fear that I feel that we would have really wonderful outcomes. They might not go to plan, no, but they would still be really wonderful experiences yeah. for people. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole nother podcast, Amy. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Final question. What do you keep mm. on your bedside table? Oh, I'm very minimal, particularly at the moment because Franklin loves pulling everything the off there. Down. But, yeah. yeah, I have a lamp and I have my Kindle and I will have an educational book. So I've got, like, my Kindle that's my crime novel yeah. and then I have, like, I think at the moment it's Atomic Habits is the book I haven't opened it because I get okay. too tired yeah, to like yeah. sit in bed and turn the light on yeah. um but it'll be that or it'll be like a nutrition-based book so it's, <laughs> but I'm like yeah. a, I'm a minimalist you're yeah. you're a you're a business and pleasure um kind of yeah. book gal I love it yeah. yeah oh my gosh Amy it feels like two seconds but it's been a it long does. interview yeah. and I've got uh, I feel like this is going to be part one yeah, of, I love, yeah, I'm down of, for that. Of, of yeah. the series, for sure. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure, I have no doubt that people are going to find this so valuable. There's like serious nuggets of gold in this. And I, <laughs> I was a bit selfish in a few of my things where I was like, please tell me how I'm supposed to feed my child without feeling mum shame and making my child extremely anxious. So thank you for entertaining that. Till next time. Um, we will see you later. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for having me. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.